Live from Nerve, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome to Derailed Trains of Thoughts, uh, your premier podcast on storytelling. Uh, my name is Timothy Deal. I am Nick Hayden. Hello, Nick. Hello. I'm a little freaked out by this place. We're way deep underground right now. Yeah. There's some giant uh, robots, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I'm they're hoping not they're quite friendly. like any other robots I've ever seen. No. No. I don't I, think we should get in them. Earlier, I saw like this guy walking by with sunglasses. I did not want to get in his way. Yeah, and we walked down that one hallway, and there was like some like huge tanks of some weird liquid in there. I didn't uh, want to take I, to look too closely. No. No. I want to run away. Yeah. So anyway, we're definitely somewhere secret that we probably shouldn't be. Yes. Thanks to the podcast again. Hopefully we're safe here. I should think so. We seem to be far enough underground. Nothing would ever come down here. Yeah. No, yeah, I, 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 I can't imagine. Okay. Anyway, welcome, folks, to the year 2020. We have flying cars and... Food replicators. We do? And yeah, I at my house I do. You don't? No. Oh. I don't know if I should be jealous or not. Yeah. The flying flying cars, no, because it's a mess with air traffic control. <laughs> no, that, that's why we remember when we were in the Roland D-Roll Thoughts, we were talking with Kenny about uh, the the drone system. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the way to do it. That's the way, the, yes. That's that's, that's what we need, not the flying cars. No. But anyway, welcome to a new decade, Nick. Yes, it's been pretty much like the last one so far. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it feels it, very similar. It's only been like 15 days, but... <laughs> How was your ski trip this year? I always feel like I have to ask you that in January. <laughs> it's a standard of the podcast. It was good. <laughs> Actually, we probably did less skiing than normal, partly because we weren't on the hill and partly because we have so many, you know... A lot of people. A lot of yeah. people. And so we all take turns. And I had fun. And the kids actually did more skiing than they had done before. They are like, feeling comfortable doing it. And that was cool, mm -hmm. going with Theo and Serenity. Was there um, any natural snow at the time, or was it all just fake snow? Well, I think it. I think it had snowed quite a bit earlier, and then they'd made snow. So I don't know what it, what percentage was what, but it was above thirty two. It was like maybe forty, and we're skiing, and it was it was nice weather for it. Oh, okay. So fun. Yeah, it was good. It was, and we had this nice, giant, beautiful house we all rented. It was it was a good time. Fun stuff. Fun How stuff. about your your Christmas? festivities well it, it was nice it would have been nicer if i didn't get sick at the end of it no oh, yeah. um yeah you like, plan that better next time yeah <laughs> i mean janelle was in town which was fantastic but it was the night of we did because we had to do uh because of family obligation stuff our main immediate family big get together was like the 27th okay. and it was like that evening when i started getting a really painful sore throat and it lasted for like a week and a half like just you just saw me Sunday yeah. and I was yeah. still having the like the lingering effects of some bronchitis. Yeah, there there's a there's a sidetrack in which uh you will have to edit out much much coughing. Much coughing. A lot of yeah and phlegm. <laughs> Hopefully it comes out okay. It, <laughs> it, I might wind up putting that out before this episode just because I feel I thought it might be a nice backup yeah. to, to what we're gonna wind up talking about today. That's true. But we'll we'll see we'll see what the timeline is like. But before folks we get into our story school, I just thought it might be nice to note Today on the day we were recording, we uh, just found out a few hours ago yeah. that Christopher Tolkien passed away. Christopher Tolkien, of course, being the son of the great author J.R.R. Tolkien. And very good uh, keeper of his 
works and a state and a legacy and mm-hmm. yeah i mean he without christopher tolkien we would not have the silmarillion or, which is i can't even imagine the world yeah. without the silmarillion he 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 edited and care took care take care took yeah um tolkien should berate me for my use of language <laughs> but uh but he he managed his father's works and estate super well mm-hmm. and um anyone who's a fan of middle earth owes him a lot yes so the, and there's plenty of Plenty of his his works. I mean, some of those history of Middle Earth books that he's done, uh, which are essentially just annotated versions of his father's stuff. Yeah, I've, it's really detailed. And I've never really gotten yeah, into. I don't know how he got through. I mean, just so much work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he put together the the Children of Hurin and the Baron Luthien collection, or his. I guess the kind of history of the various versions. Yeah, basically, kind of elaborated. Well, I guess the Children of Hurin was sort of like he took. A lot of his father's outline for stories that were in the Silmarillion. And I think even drafts that were half done. Oh, were they half drafts? Okay. My memory. It's been a while. It, they expanded them into a novel format, which is great. And, and I know he did the same with Baron Luthien, which is, I think, one of Tolkien's great short stories. Yeah. And I, I understand just like as recently as like he was, he must have been like 93 when he completed the, the did one for the fall of Gondolin. Nice. Which, yeah, apparently I need to look at those other two things yes. at some point. But he passed away today at the age of 95, so we'd like to dedicate this podcast to him, because as huge fans of Middle Earth, we, we owe him we owe a lot. Yeah, we owe him a lot. So, Thank you, Christopher. Um, at this point, I would insert something very poetic if uh, I wouldn't know. The roads go ever on and on. The roads go ever on and on beyond the, the glassy sea. Yeah. With that said, let's move on now into story school. Okay, so I feel like this is a topic we've maybe touched, danced around before. Certainly, I know you and I have have complained about it before. Yes, uh, over the many years we've known each other, um, and that subject is overanalyzation. Yes, uh, never happens in anything nowadays. Most people are very um, conservative in their analyzation of their works. But in case you aren't, we thought we would berate you, not talk about <laughs> some of the some of the pitfalls. Honestly, with things you like or really resonate with. Yeah. So and now, and obviously, we analyze stories all the time. So it's not as if analyzation of stories is always a bad thing. No. And um, my sibling, well, sisters, especially, would say I overanalyze everything I watch. But <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a fine line between um, enjoying something and really digging into something, and then going beyond what is really healthy for a story. Yeah. So Tim, let's make for the sake of this podcast kind of our definition what we think is kind of a solid good analyzation of a work. Anything that we say. Oh, good. Done. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Basically in 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 a perfect world, and again, not that we always do this either, your analyzation should be based in the work, in the context, in the author and not only whatever you want to pull out of it. There's there's certain things that the work itself supports and again people argue about what that is but that's all within the purview of what we would call good analyzation yeah our podcasts at least the two of us i should say are very much anti-death of the author which if you're not familiar with that term 
it's something that is sometimes used in English circles, English being like English majors, to say that the author doesn't really have any role in in the work once it's done. Once it's done, whoever reads something can just basically mean whatever it means to them. You know, find your truth, yeah. whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, we don't subscribe to that. No. So that's kind of our baseline, so you can know where we're coming from. And I guess the different types of overanalyzation, one would be a lot of stories have applicability, meaning you can apply things from the books to other situations. And that's a valid thing to do. You know, you read a response or think, oh, this resonates with me. It's just like what's happening nowadays. You, you watch Babylon 5, you're like, oh, that looks like history or what's going on in the news or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And it's like, I, oh, look, they were dealing with racism in the 90s. We're still dealing with racism today. Exactly. Like, oh, the news, they don't trust the news. Well, no. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we don't trust the news either. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, read 1984. Reason, the reason you read good books, watch good movies, is because they are always applicable. The problem is when you make that the... You overdo it. Tolkien used to complain a little bit about, speaking of Tolkien, mm-hmm. people would say, oh, the ring in Lord of the Rings means the atomic bomb is all an allegory for World War II. And he's like, no. He's like, <laughs> I, I was writing this before World War II, but because of the applicability of power, it applies maybe to the atomic bomb, but it's not. It's not a one-for-one relationship. And some people would insist, well, of course, it has to be it, this. It's this, and how dare you? And then and the problem is when you say it is this, then if that's the bomb, then the Shire is England or Mordor. I don't know what you do with it. But yeah. I mean, but when you pin something down that can't be supported and build everything from that, mm-hmm. it becomes a sort of overanalyzation. And this is why I was talking about death of the author stuff. When you start substituting your truth, your interpretation as like the only possible way to interpret a work. Yeah. Especially when that is obviously contrary to what the author has said about his own work. Yeah. And, and we've, you know, I've done stuff, you know, Evangelion, crazy anti, you know, anti-religion, whatever. But you can bring religious things out of it because it's true about human nature, about mm. the, the search for meaning stuff like that, and you can make connections that makes resonate with me that I know the guy wasn't talking about. Yeah. Because good art has multiple layers and multiple ways resonate. But to say, this is what it means, is insane, especially if you have any context of... What the guy was, was trying to say. When he, when he yeah. made it, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, Christians can be just as guilty of, of this as uh, secularists. Yeah. When you, like... This story was is clearly an allegory for Christ's salvation, all this stuff. And it's like, well, mm, you can pull a sermon illustration out of that <laughs> as long as you're not trying to say this is definitely the hidden meaning behind this yeah. thing. I guess that goes to it. Hidden meaning is, I think, another version of overanalyzation. We're like, well, this is what everyone thinks it means. But if you look at these little connections, this is what it really means. The conspiracy theorist's version of uh, analyzing stories. And to be fair, there's a certain amount of this that sometimes people just do this for fun. Yeah, yeah. And if you're just doing it for fun, I don't blame you too much. I feel like I've talked about game theory, on the, yeah. uh, which is a YouTube channel on the show before. I remember one video I enjoyed was like they were trying to figure out how much money Scrooge McDuck is actually worth. <laughs> yeah. And they're analyzing pictures of his money bin that shows how many feet deep it is of pure gold and stuff like that. That's fun. That's taking little clues that are on screen or in in the comics or something, then kind of extrapolating some ridiculous picture out of that. 
If you go too far, though, I think for me, it's it's where you like say, no, this is this really is what it is. And you're just pulling like really minor details and equating that with the truth. And like, eh, it's not maybe if you're having fun with it. But for me, it just starts to feel disrespectful at a certain level. Yeah. And I think, again, to say, you know, I think Christians do this sometimes, even with some obscure stuff in the Bible, like, oh, these are the hidden. And sometimes there are meanings from like culture that like, oh, we understand the. Old Testament culture now, it makes more sense. But sometimes you're like, I don't think that's what it means. You've like used one thing and it's spiritualized, you know, they'll highly spiritualize things. Go ahead. You look or, like- or, or like, well, analyze this one scripture. I've taken this scripture over here and this scripture over here and calculated that this means Jesus is coming back at <laughs> such and such a date. I've, yeah. I've cracked the code, cracked the, Omega the code, code yep. where I'm like, yeah, but over here, Jesus said no one knows the day <laughs> exactly. or the hour. So uh, the hidden the hidden um, meaning comes a lot from taking minor things and making them the major things. Mm, mm-hmm. I, you know, and some shows and some t- books let and I think shows lend to it more just because they tend to be a little more built on the fly. Mm-hmm. So there's more, but TV you know, shows, TV shows. But like you know, lost people take all the little stuff like oh this must mean this and this must mean this and oh that Hurley bird and um, <laughs> I forget about the Hurley bird. <laughs> But the problem is, and some shows want you to interpret stuff, and so it becomes like red herring palooza. Mm-hmm. That's what Lost became. But then people on the internet just like to do this. Like, here's how all the Pixar movies fit together. Like, it's fun because that's a fun thing. It's to a do. fun thing. But like, if you actually think the authors are doing that, I think uh, you're giving almost way too much credit because they're just making movies as they come up with ideas. Well, part of the problem with the internet is that some of the stuff becomes clickbait. I mean, yes, there's it, a lot of that. I mean, it's fun that Pixar has a lot of little Easter eggs. They reuse little assets from movie to movie. Oh yeah, and they'll sneak characters in the background somewhere. But sometimes I know, like, I remember when I was following Brad Bird, a director on Twitter, or maybe it was Andrew Stanton, another Pixar director, he would, they would just tweet a sigh when someone would be, like, texting him asking for all the Pixar, where are all the Pixar Easter eggs? And be like, can't we just talk about the story? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, sometimes those w- weird, interesting, hidden, quote-unquote, hidden connections, you can make good argument they are purposeful. Like, you sent me that one time, the guy who analyzed the prequels. Oh, the circle theory, I think. Yeah, which might not... Or ring might, theory. Maybe it's ring now, theory. would you say that was overanalyzation or or just pushing things that are actually there and he put more meaning to it than probably was... Uh, that's tricky. I, was, I, I had thought about him because he had a really super interesting theory in terms of how the prequels sort of mirrored... This is before the sequel trilogy was even yeah. a thing. How each of the prequel movies mirrored one of the the uh, original trilogy movies, and mm-hmm. how they and I mean, there's a little there's background for it. George Lucas said himself that the movies were sort of like jazz or like yeah. poetry; they rhymed. Um, I mean, he went into really great detail about all this stuff. I mean, the way and the way he would compare contrast shots was fascinating. Like yeah. some of the the composition of a shot in. One movie was eerily similar to what what it was yeah. in another movie, where there were similar things going on. So yeah, that's that's tricky. It, it's one of those things where it's a fine line. And I, I remember reading it, feeling like the guy was not. I think for me, the key difference is the guy was not. He was presenting it as a theory, not as 
fact, fact, not as okay. gospel truth. And for me, that makes that makes one of the huge differences. Where whether you you describe your interpretation as just that an interpretation, or you hold all things past, present, and future about a story in relation to this one idea yeah. about it. And I think the the temptation for anal- overanalyzation comes because art being created, sometimes the author himself doesn't quite know what they're they're discovering too. Like yeah. some of these connections, some of these repetitions, some of these things are built out of the deep things of an artist that's very human. And then it, there'll be repetitions and meanings that they meant, but they were not planned mm. in the sense that like, it's not like they had a master plan and put it all together. Yeah. It was just, they're a human being with certain things that keep resonating with them. Like, I'll find connections in Strin Fred that I didn't plan, mm-hmm. but they just were because of the sorts of things I'm talking about, the sort of ways I think about the world, Yeah, um, sort of things that interest me. And I think sometimes viewers of movies, readers of books, read more of a master plan or things then was there because there is actually this deep continuity there mm-hmm. because of the just the artist being drawing from the same well being being, con- being consistent consistent with, with himself and what he's wrestling through and yeah 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 that makes sense and and honestly the the ring theory i hope i'm remembering the name of this yeah. star wars theory right that may be what it was it may just be that there was a continuity of Lucas's method of filmmaking. And he might have said, like, I like this shot. I'm going to redo it. But he's not having a deep meaning behind it. He's just like, we're playing jazz. Yeah. So I think, there, I think there's the temptation for organization is very natural just because you want to. We love finding meaning. Humans are meaning-finding creatures. Yeah. And sometimes we feel better the more meaning, you know, it's that sort of like pleasure of being on the inside the more meaning we can find then we know it even better than other people mm. it becomes a bit of a intellectual pride yeah. going into yeah. your having your own interpretation of it yeah yeah no that makes sense and speaking of intellectual pride probably the worst and most egregious version of organization is when you're basically an academic and you can't read anything normal <laughs> yeah <laughs> I remember when I was I've I've commented before about how I had to take some communication theory classes in in college and even some in grad school and was kind of yeah. you know kind of annoyed by it. But then there are certain things that I wound up learning and I've kind of incorporated in my thinking about certain things later. But one side of academia that I've always felt and probably one of the main things that kept me from pursuing like academia as a career mm-hmm. was kind of this feeling that the study of stories in academics kind of didn't have a large reach of, or purpose outside of academia. It's like you, in, unless you find a new way to read the story, it's not worth writing. About well, and like, because <laughs> what I remember specifically, like for my, one of my important senior papers was having to fits my interpretation of a story within a theory mm. of storytelling yeah. within like there's a certain like formula you that you have to find how does this fit into this formula and it just seemed unnecessary it felt like one of those things that like you need to know this in case you wind up pursuing a phd in in literature or something because yeah. you'll need to know how to fit something within this Model. Yeah. Model, I think, is the word they use more often than formula. And the funny thing is, I feel like we've seen on the internet, on YouTube in particular, a lot of people who enjoy 
the study of film, the study of, of stories. Yeah. We see a lot of video essays are a, a huge thing now that, that wasn't a thing on YouTube 10, even five years ago. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if that is the remnant of people who took film studies classes but didn't want to go into writing papers like that. They just <laughs> they just enjoy talking about movies and just we've just kind of dumped the this model stuff yeah. kind of by the wayside. Which honestly I think is probably more useful for the common film yeah. geek. <laughs> and I think sometimes the the theory overtakes the story. Yeah. That like we are more concerned with how we talk about things and what we can finding new meanings than in like, hey, this is an enjoyable story. Obviously, some some stories are have multiple levels, especially the greatest of the ones in the Dostoevsky's and stuff. Oh yeah. So uh, once upon a time, I had found this mocking version of Bible criticism where they like look at the Old Testament, like oh let's see all the different authors of Exodus and break it down and separate it. Um, and it was called New Directions in Pooh Studies, as in Wayne the Pooh. And they analyzed Wayne the Pooh in this very Old Testament textual criticism way. And it's it's kind of genius. We'll have to leave a link. Um, we should a put link, a link in the show notes. To, I don't yeah. know how much I can read this, but he talks about the different names Pooh are given. So that's the different authors and how they were interacted with each other and redacted. And it's... It's ridic- and it's written with all these footnotes and everything, and it's it's amazingly dense and academic, <laughs> and someone really knew what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. When you said you said uh, put your because you did a uh, an academic study of uh, green eggs and green ham. eggs and ham to pull out the deep theological meanings. Oh, once upon a time, I think we did a here on the podcast. We did the philosophy of Looney Tunes. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we, we went into great depth about, uh, I think that's in episode 35, I want to say. And some, some People probably actually do that for real. Oh, yeah. We, and, I mean, we were being facetious, yeah. like making, just making stuff up about Bugs Bunny being a Christ figure and <laughs> Wile E. Coyote pre- representing the frustration of uh, fallen man and <laughs> things like that. And again, it works because there are certain universal things you can just connect, but at some point you just kind of, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, certainly Looney Tunes characters have archetypes, exactly. because everything falls within certain character types. But when you start extending, and this not just Looney Tunes, but like any story, you start overextending that to, you can just pull it to ridiculous levels when something's just meant to be a cartoon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think about... You can't do that, Tim. I think it's supposed to be a feminist, socialist, (laughs) postmodern critique of colonialism. I mean, I've thought about this with uh, going back to our Star Wars discussion and sidetrack. Yeah. With The Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker feels to me like the same kind of movie that Return of the Jedi is. It's meant to be really big, boisterous, like... The child and the child like can eat this stuff. It's supposed up. to just be an adventure movie, really. Yeah, and there's a cynical way to say that, where where some people will say you just turn your brain off and enjoy the ride. Star Wars is supposed to be silly. You know, don't worry yeah. about it. I wouldn't necessarily go that far because there's a certain amount of seriousness even to an adventure movie or and things you should do. Yeah, well, and I think there's also there's a difference I think between just kind of passively taking something in and actively listening to what a story is trying to be. Mm. Like, I think a big part of the problem with overanalyzation is that people are too eager to talk and not 
not ready to listen. And sometimes people don't understand that listening is not necessarily a passive thing. Mm -hmm. Listening should be an active thing where you're actively seeking to understand what another person is trying to say without necessarily adding your own interpretation. I mean, I guess that's kind of what we've been saying the whole time. Well, I like that's a good summary. Yeah, I, li- I like the listening aspect because, especially with the internet now, everyone wants to put their two cents in. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to immediately watch a new movie and say everything they thought that they thought it should have been versus what is it trying to be? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when I say that, it's, it's a great childlike atmosphere. Like when Jesus talks about childlike faith, I think he means it in terms of like a kid will just will just absorb it. And mm-hmm. somehow, somehow that there's a certain childlike attitude that just accepts things and not like in a, I don't mean say in a naive way, but in yeah. a trusting way, yeah. in a, a sense of like, okay, let's go with it. Yeah. And um, I think that's a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. And again, you shouldn't necessarily go into uh, a Tarantino movie <laughs> with a childlike attitude. Um, you shouldn't be more discerning than that. And then but. you can, and then even with those like adventure movie, you can still then after the fact, analyze did it do what it was doing well? Did it, was it things it was lazy about? Was it things that really worked? Was it, you know? Mm-hmm. But though that's a normal analyzation versus like, <laughs> you know, some of the, back when, you know, people won Ray to be like Obi-Wan's granddaughter. It's like, I'm trying to think, how do you even do that in a film without, <laughs> you know, or like there were back when Lost, you know, you're like, oh, here's all the answers. Like they'd have to write like an essay to explain how everything connected. Like, and how are you going to explain that visually? <laughs> you <laughs> how know? are you going to include all that information? That has, that's, that's basically has nothing to do with the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just your pet thing. Right, right. And yeah, it might be cool. It might be a cool reveal. It might be more clever there. But is it good story? And that kind of goes to the crux of it, doesn't it? Because as well versus our culture is on the story, and other times I... I think people forget that not every story can be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Like one of the, the neat things about Star Wars as a franchise is, as I've said recently, you can have a lot of different kinds of Star Wars stories. And, you know, if you want something that's super detailed about all the nuts and bolts, well, go read a Timothy Zahn novel. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to find that in Star Wars. Like you, you don't need the vast details of, where they mined all the materials for their vast Starfleet army. I mean, there's or just Star Wars. There's no reason to like. How do they make this Death Star? Unless you have to support lots of more stuff. But the book, the movie itself, no one cares. Yeah, you shouldn't care. It's not meant to be a point of contention. <laughs> you know, the fact that the Emperor then makes a second Death Star is supposed to just be all right. We're in that sort of movie. Okay, and that's what we do. We got to, We have to go with take this and then just get the ball running, and then we'll let we'll let some other authors fill and, in the details later. Honestly, that's why everyone loved to begin with. Be like, wow, another Death Star. This is awesome. <laughs> you know what? A Super Star Destroyer, man. Not like I don't know. You know, they've I w- done that before. I, 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 wish, no. I wish you could do the comic book guy's voice from Simpsons. Like, <laughs> you know, wow. You know, but. And again, I know all the other stuff, too, because I like both sides of it. You know, I've read a lot of the books and stuff, but yeah. So one more thing about overanalyzation. I do think this kind of postmodern, like, even the authors don't have a meaning. They just want to kind of let it be interpreted by the reader, lends itself to this atmosphere of overanalyzation. I'm not, you know, it's even more widespread where even the authors are like, I don't know. You guys just choose your own ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think there's a place for that if you have this applicability and you want it to be. I guess it's sort of like when we talk about 
the more abstract you make a thing, the more you can read into it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think there are possible reasons why an author might purposely leave it abstract in order for it to resonate. Because the more specific you become, the less you can read into it. The less room for imagination. Well, and even um, John Baylor sent us that George McDonald quote a while back, Mm -hmm. where even George McDonald, I think it was him. Uh, Yeah, it sounds right. Thought that it was good for readers to be able to come to a fresh understanding of something that maybe even the author didn't even have in mind. So there's, I mean, as long as that's not contrary to the work, for me, that's the big thing. Yeah. If, if something adds to the work, but is not contrary to the work, then I think that's a good, it's a good new, fresh reading. Yeah. I think there is certainly a lot of value in the reader response and you, each story interacts with a person differently. Mm-hmm. Well, and we've, we've talked before about how in certain myths and stuff, mm-hmm. some of those stories are very vague and leave the reader like, well, what was that all about? Yeah. So it's not just, it's not just a, a recent innovation. There's, there's some of the old stories no, that have that. I don't know if I've mentioned the podcast before, but I've heard that like some of the Bible's written in this meditative, have I mentioned meditative form where it purposely doesn't make the connection so that you have to think about it mm. and draw the conclusion. The problem is... What it means is that there is an actual answer, not whatever answer you come to is what you're supposed to come to. I think mm-hmm. those are the differences sometimes, you know, yeah. whether you leave it open so you can make, like, you know, a person might leave it vague, but the connections are there to make, do the answer, and there is an answer is different than, well, whatever you come up with is good. Yeah. <laughs> what, whatever you think is accurate is fine. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that is true. At least in some <laughs> context. Yeah. I mean, it does depend on the context. I mean... Paul talks about there being room for disputable matters yeah, and that whatever one person decides about certain things. But then there's obviously other things that Paul will say, this is good, this is bad. I mean, talking biblically, the author had knew what he wanted to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I always find that fascinating that God did leave certain things to be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was very clear about certain things that are right and wrong, but there's other things he's like... I, I always find that interesting that even in the Bible, Paul says like, yeah, there's going to be different, there's going to be some gray areas, Yeah, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. And maybe that's just because we're each different people and that there are maybe yeah. are in, in the debatable matters, not one size fits all. In the non-debatable manners, then you yeah. got the work to understand what is he saying here. Right. Right. So yeah, that's so. true. All right. That's most of what I had covered because we wanted to talk about it partly because in the media saturated culture we're in, people are very loose with their, you know, reading. They'll read politics, all kinds of stuff into stuff. They're like, I don't think that's there. And, you know, my favorite, like, if you want to talk about good over analyzation, I think the podcast trend of examining a movie a minute at a oh. time or two minutes at a time. Because I, I listen to one that does that goes through Muppet movies two minutes at a time. And it's and this is the only time I've listened to podcasts that's done this. But what's fun about it is you get to and I know these movies well enough. I don't even have to be watching them. I know exactly what scenes I can picture in my <laughs> yeah. head, what, what's, what they're talking about. But you're basically getting to go over the film with a fine-tooth comb and enjoying all the like little idiosyncrasies that come along with it. Like, oh, that was an interesting choice. I wonder why they did that. Or, yeah. you know, like, think about what sort of puppetry trick was going on in this shot. And I think for most of these podcasts, I, I mean, maybe there's some that podcasts that are analyzing movie that the podcasters hate. Yeah. But most of them seem to be about fans just delving into something, a movie that they love. Yeah. And really getting to enjoy every little piece of it. And... I think that's the best kind of overanalyzation. Yeah, that's more just like, not so much overanalyzation as just like, 
massive amount of vandalization. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like they're overdoing it in the sense that like they're reading way too much into it. They're just they're just looking enjoying at, it. They're 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 micro analyzing it. <laughs> and I guess the people who make extensive fan wikis about, uh, I mean, thank you for you people who um, <laughs> that's very useful for uh, any time like for making Babylon Five. Yes, a podcast about it. And look up. Well, when did so and so? Oh, here it is. It, that's just knowing your details. <laughs> <laughs> that's being a true fan. True fan. That's the only fans. <laughs> No, no, not really. <laughs> but but it does make it does enhance our enjoyment it of does. of stories or and what's there. Yeah. Yes, it can. Again, I think overanalyzation a lot of it really does come down to pride. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so that is our story school for today. We will now move on into soundtrack. For my soundtrack today, I decided to do something from Xenogears because it's a very dense, spiritually laden story that you can certainly overanalyze. Actually, my remix also has some Chrono Cross in, which if you listen to my rant about that one episode, can also be overanalyzed. It's a medley for those two called You Give Me Wings. I think there's also one more in there. Oh, there is Civilization Four in this, which I know nothing about. So. I don't know if that has a story at all, honestly. No, just Maybe it's, it's, it's a world building. people or something. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. But it's, it's from Dwelling of Duels. And the website. A website that does monthly contests. Between composers? Yeah, between... And usually it's live playing. It's not like electronic or anything. Oh, like that. okay. I, well... And that's how it started. Maybe it's not that anymore. Okay. It tends to involve a lot more live instruments. And this one is by? Ivan Hastock. So it's very 80s. Enjoy.
we're back. We're back. Hopefully, uh, you feel like you just got back from Hawkins, Indiana. Yep. Sounds good. It's actually probably a cheerier place than where we're at right That's now. That's a little scary. Yeah, honestly. believe it, believe it or not. After yeah, this kid, he didn't. The, yeah, he looked the, more messed up than yeah from the other than those Hawking kids. Yeah, no kidding. Which is saying a lot. Yeah. Anyway, on lighter notes, we have some. Listener feedback. So over on uh, derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Which, which is, is our website. Which is our website still. <laughs> we will do something in this decade. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to say we've, we've got something new coming this year, but you never know. It's <laughs> These things always seem to take longer than we think. Um, but anyway, on their websites, uh, we got uh, comments from the ever-lovely, ever-graceful, ever-musical Janelle Buford. Oh, you know her, huh? I, I do know her okay. a, a little bit. Good. And she, on our last episode where we were talking about biblical adaptations, Janelle wanted to mention Frederick Buchner's, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, forgive me, Janelle, uh, <laughs> The Son of Laughter and Walter Wagner's The Book of God, Jesus, and Paul. So those are all novel adaptations. Oh, nice. And she was in highly in favor of the Judges anime series. Well, I will kickstart it. <laughs> My sister, on the other hand, she texted me and she and was like, a Judges anime? Really? It's <laughs> like, sure, that'd be great. It's as good as any way to read Judges. <laughs> but in all honesty, Janelle was telling me some more about, I think it was uh, The Son of Laughter, which I think was about, if I remember right, maybe, uh, forgive me if I'm getting this mixed up with one of these other ones, but she was telling me about how... Um, an author was really did a good job of getting in the mindset of the everyday people oh, and in some of these Bible stories that they that they were about. That's something you don't get from the Bible, which would be very yeah a good thing to get from an adaptation. Yeah, like um, and one of them there was talking about uh, the Israelites and about how they were basically you know people who had lived in Egypt in a from a city basically, and yeah. then going from being you know, a civilized city where you have food and water readily yeah. available to being out in the wilderness. Suddenly all these people, these country people were like, well, we need something to drink. And yeah. We, 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 uh, berate the Israelites a lot for being constantly complaining and they probably weren't doing it in the right spirit of intent, but would we really be that different in those probably, circumstances? Probably not. Honestly. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for those uh, recommendations, Janelle. And I know there's a lot of other great biblical adaptation novels. And if we miss them, Feel free to uh, send those our way. Yes. All right. Well, with that, we don't want to spend a lot of time with listener feedback because this is time for our big annual, our take on Tales. Specifically, we do our take on Tales more regularly, but specifically today, we uh, wanted to do our annual book club review. Dun, dun, dun. We have our No Pressure Book Club, where every, I guess, two months we pick a new book. Our number of books for our yearly book club goes down every time, I feel like. <laughs> but our participation is hanging in there, sort of. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. That's good. Again, you've read all of these. Yes, I make it a goal of mine. It is, it's actually been a very nice collection of books over the last couple of years. Fun, so. fun. And I think this year we got a decent variety of stuff. I'm not sure if any of them went quite as deep as some years. Maybe not quite as deep, but they were interesting. Good, good. We'll start out with what's funny is uh, this was the beginning of the year, but I actually just finally got around to finishing it myself. Thrawn, a Star Wars tie-in novel. 
by Timothy Zahn, the first one he wrote for the new official canon, I believe. Yes. And Thrawn is an important character for those of you who aren't Star Wars aficionados. Thrawn was a very important well, there, Timothy Zahn wrote the original trilogy of books about Thrawn. Which basically started the whole Star Wars publishing bonanza. Mm-hmm, back in the early 90s. Yeah. And, and it was a great series. It was a great series. And yeah, and Timothy Zahn is probably still my favorite Star Wars author. He would go on to write several more. And I was never as devoted to the Star Wars uh, novel, Extended Universe, mm-hmm. as some people were. But I always enjoyed it when I got a chance to read one of his. Yeah. Um, so when I... Initially heard about he was bringing Thrawn back into the new canon, different setting, more in the in between the prequel and the original trilogy era. I was uh, pretty excited about it, but then I think I sort of started realizing what sort of story it was and very subconsciously started dragging my feet. And it took me a long time to get to it because it is sort of an odd beast to have a whole book because in the previously Thrawn was the antagonist. Yeah. This is a book where he's the protagonist. Yeah. Which is interesting, which is odd because you know, he's a, he's an Imperial grand admiral. Well, at least in this book, he's working his way up the Imperial ranks. So it's kind of weird to be reading a story from an Imperial, you know, the empire's perspective, except like he's actually, he really is a good guy. He, he feels like they're keeping order and he's not abusing power. Um, and he's interesting because he's very tactical. Yeah. And almost like a Sherlock sort of yeah, guy. He, he likes reading, logically reading the whole situation. Even in the original books, one of his big things, and they, it's still a, a big character thing, was he would examine the art of a civilization that he was uh, up against or investigating or, yeah. or what have you. So yeah, this book really does bring out the fact that, yeah, Thrawn is a weird fit into the Imperial Navy. Most obviously because he's an alien. He has blue skin yeah. and red eyes. And most of the Imperials are very xenophobic and just humans. Yeah. So he was an, obviously not fit. But even just his demeanor and way of doing business was quite starkly different from the rest of the Imperials. He's very competent. And he really believes that the best way to keep order have a, is to have a strong presence. But he doesn't, he doesn't really want to like squeeze people down. He just wants... Keep order. Basically. Yeah, he, he was he was always he tried to spare life as much as possible, as opposed to the Darth Vader who would just kill anyone who's in his way. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. My my favorite scene in the book, I think, was actually between him and the not insurgent, the the guy he's chasing throughout okay. most of the book. Yeah, because the guy basically asked him, "Why are you still with the Empire? Like, you obviously have a better moral code. You can yeah. see how it's corrupt. Why are you still with them?" Yeah. And Thrawn's answer is interesting. His reasons are his own. In some ways, his uh, they talk throughout the book about how he, as brilliant as he is, he's not very good at politics. No, no. And you can kind of, you can sort of read into him sort of the intellectual who has this logical understanding of things and yet doesn't really understand how human nature works. Yeah. And the other interesting thing, and this is just from a Star Wars fan point of view, is it adds this whole sort of like, so he has this whole race of people outside of the Republic that like the emperor's interested in and he's trying to keep secret mm-hmm. and you know, it's going to come into play in, at some point because, so there's a second book, which I did read. Um, and that's largely about Thrawn and Darth Vader working together simultaneously having flashbacks with when Anakin first met Thrawn. Mm-hmm. But then there's a third book, which I've not read, but Zach has, and it's called treason treason, I think, because his big struggle is he's sworn fealty to the empire, but 
his people is really who he cares about. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like the chiss. It sounds like he views the, the potential of some other greater evil outside the outer rim, the main Star Wars galaxy yeah. that he's afraid of and thinks the Empire could be a great asset in helping protect against. So there's some interesting stuff for the for the Star Wars universe as a whole that I don't know if is in someone's back pocket, I think, for mm-hmm. future projects. Well, it's, I wonder if in the later extended universe, there was a whole Yuzung Vong thing, yeah. which weird things happen out of that that I, I only heard scuttlebutt about. I was not a fan of, but I don't know. It'd be now that the Skywalker saga in the movies is more complete, I'd be more open to seeing what they do with that sort of storyline with down some the road. other someone from outside the republic space yeah yeah one other thing i'll touch on for this book i, th- I thought was interesting was there's a side story about governor price yes about how she becomes a governor and, and she she has she's very intense and can i not in the conniving um resourceful well what was interesting that for me in a way is that hers was kind of also this rise to power Except that her moral character degenerated the farther up yep. she went, whereas Thrawn was kind of a stable force throughout. It's a it's a nice kind of contrast. Compare contrast. It does. This feels very much like some of the other of the canon books I've read, like Tarkin and Catalyst. It's basically a character study. Mm. This stuff happens. It's not like, but it's very character focused. Yeah. So, would you recommend people reading it? Uh, depends on what they thought of the, about this conversation. This wasn't my favorite Timothy Zahn book. I think in some ways I like Thrawn more as an antagonist or as a side character as yeah. opposed to being the main focus because, uh, I don't know, just some of the the space combat stuff or the strategic stuff wasn't really my cup of tea. But, you know, if it, if it interests you, check it out. And just to add to that, I did enjoy the him constantly one-upping everyone <laughs> and the tactical. The, I'm always like, how is he going to pull this one off? But... Yeah, I would say if you're a Star Wars guy and you haven't read it and you want to get into the books, it's not a bad one, I think, to kind of start with. Sure. All right. The next book uh, we had uh, down was Sleep No More. I believe Greg suggested this one. Yes. It's a collection of ghost stories. Okay. Yeah, I never got to this book. It was interesting. I've never read ghost stories, so I don't have anything to compare it to. And it was older. It was hard for me. I had to get it on, like, Kindle because... Was this an anthology? Anthology of, like, this... Like, a lot of short stories. Multiple authors? or No, just the... I can't remember the guy's name. I'll look it up. They're kind of old. And I think the most interesting thing in in the no, in the book I read, what's his name? P.D. James? Yes. Okay. The most interesting thing, I think, was, and they made this point in the like the little intro, was that he didn't write ghost stories that were also like in spots he didn't always see it. Like there was this car race, this race up this hill, and there was all this description of engines and stuff, and there was this ghost story there. And he'd put it in places you wouldn't, wouldn't always see. Like some of this more mecha- like like in factories and stuff like that, and they were they were interesting. I I enjoyed it. It's not something I would necessarily read a lot of, just because I nothing wrong with it. Just I guess didn't resonate as much with me, but I found it pretty fascinating. Just some of his he was very good at detail and eliciting a sense of place and detail. And some of them were pretty creepy. Some of them were, I'm just like okay. I, I felt like there needed to be more. Or, like, some more explanation. There were a lot of just sort of, like, un- I don't know how to explain. Maybe the car one. This guy has a dream and about a crash, and then it happens the next day sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They were, like, unexplained, and they were very much, like, sometimes just weird stuff happens. Like, there's this train, and there's this tunnel, and there's all this sulfur smoke comes out, and something happens. But, like, sometimes they're just, like, there's no explanation at all. It's just, like, 
hmm. weird incident and tr- just make you feel a little off. And so it was like a style I'd never read before. And then some of them I really enjoyed and some of them I'm like, I need a little more. Mm-hmm. But the good one, the couple, about two or three that I really enjoyed, I can't remember offhand because it's been most of a year now. Okay. But... So it sounds like that one was more about atmosphere. It was very atmospheric. Okay. And uh, like the history, the sense of place and atmosphere did very well. Yes. So like if you want to read kind of vintage ghost stories, I'd, I'd read it, but I don't know how, you know, I don't know anything else to compare it to. Okay. So Sleep No More by P.D. James. Yes. Okay. Well, the next we have The Lightning Thief, which this is the first book of the Percy Jackson series. Which I had never read. And I never had either, surprisingly. I had seen uh, the movie, the first Percy Jackson movie. Which is not great. Long time ago. It, it's not horrible. No, though, honestly. No, it's just... I've seen a lot worse book adaptations. No, just sort of there. Just sort of there. Yeah. yeah that's fair. And we, this came right after my son was like, like loving, like, Dad, you have to read these books. And it's like, oh, good. I have to read this book now. I remember the thing that's, that uh, surprised me, or one thing that surprised me, the tone seemed to shift a lot from what I remember. Mm. If you don't know what Percy Jackson is, he's the son of Zeus. No, take that. Poseidon. Poseidon, thank you. He's the son of Poseidon. And basically, it's sort of like Harry Potter with Greek gods. Mythology, yeah. Yeah, like they, he goes to a school that is filled with other demigods, basically the human offspring of Greek gods. Yeah. Except this is all set in modern America. Mm-hmm. Because apparently the Greeks travel to wherever is the seats of human, I don't remember what the details are, human power, human freedom? Western 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 civilization. Western ideal. Okay. So anyway, which is American now. Yeah. There's ongoing struggles between Hades and 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 Poseidon. This other conspiracy with the gods going on. Someone stole the lightning. Yeah. Someone someone stole (laughs) Zeus's lightning and so they have to go retrieve it and all this stuff. And when I say the tones kind of shifted, like an early book, like Percy is, he kind of comes off as like a Dickens, like Oliver Twist sort of like, he's constantly the odd man out in this world that doesn't make sense around him until he understands where he comes from. But then later in the book, it it gets much more like lighthearted, goofy as he goes through his adventures and he has this kind of this sardonic take. Percy has a kind of, it's it's first person. Yeah. He has a funny take on on the things that are going around him. But then you also get like these really dark times when they actually go into the underworld and like, which is really pretty dark and depressing for a kid's book. his stepdad is like just horrible. Yeah. I mean, like it is kind of, like I enjoyed the book, but simultaneously, and again, partly because it's not made for me. It's like, it's a young adult. It model. moves very fast. And I always wanted to like sink into something. And it just like I enjoyed the it was yeah. it very much felt like along the the quest sort of nature. It was a good quest sort sort of book and really clever use of mythology. Yeah. I mean, and that's what it's known for more than anything. Mythology in a modern setting. Uh, yeah. How, how do you adapt these ideas to a modern And that's pretty interesting. That's that's fun. Like uh Ares is this biker dude. Yeah. I remember one a scene from the movie I I thought they did particularly decently was the stuff with the Medusa. Yeah. And the with the garden. I think Uma Thurman played the Medusa. Yeah. Of course the movie they they cast all the characters as like teenagers, whereas here they they, like, they feel much more like twelve year olds. Yeah, I think they're I think they're about that age. Yeah. 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 It's it's a Hollywood thing to do. Yeah. It's easier to cast young adults as teenagers. So I enjoyed it. I wasn't like, oh I gotta go read the next one right or yeah. anything. I, I kinda felt the same way. I thought it was fun, but yeah, I didn't feel like I was ready to dive into the whole series. Yeah. So then after that, we had A Wind in the Door. I really enjoyed A Wind in the Door. I know you had you had conflicted responses to this. This was a weird book. <laughs> that was my initial impression. See, it was a weird book, but like 
it was one of the books that like I got hooked reading. I just kept wanting to read it. Like this sort of weird book works for me. So A Wind in the Door, if you're not familiar, is by Madame L'Engle. Um I guess we didn't say who Percy Jack Lightning oh. Thief was. That's um, Riordan. Thank you. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> a Wind in the Door is a sequel to A Wrinkle in Time. Which, which is also a weird book, but not as weird. Not as weird. I love The Wrinkle in Time because for me, it, it was a great fantasy slash sci-fi, a weird mix of those two things. But that's what, yes. it, what, what it is. From a Christian perspective, and we don't get enough good Christian stories like that. No, especially science fiction. Especially science fiction. And I really, I could really identify with a lot of it. This one, okay, first off, there's hardly any mention in this. It's a sequel to A Wrinkle in Time, but there's hardly any mention to anything that happens in yeah, that one. Yeah, I don't know if that's just her style or maybe that's just our current expectations of if you're going to yeah, do a know. series, you're going to build off each other. And it just seemed weird that- It's very were, much a standalone book. Yeah, and just odd to me from a character's perspective that they wouldn't be trying to associate these new weird things going on to the past weird things that they went yeah. through. So anyway, there's that. But then this one is- the first three-fourths of the book is kind of exposition. It I really say. is. Because it deals with, if A Wrinkle in Time was was kind of a going into outer space fantasy sort of book, this one is going into an inner space, like down to the cellular, cellular yep. level. Um, and cherubim. Yeah, with, with with cherubim. And devils. And demons. And, yeah. And it's, it's odd. <laughs> yeah, it is a book that only... It's actually amazingly that the fact that it exists is an amazing thing. Like you have to have the th- exposition of the first three fourths of the book for the like the last fourth to make any sense. Yeah, with the, all the like trying to explain <laughs> Kai thing and the Ferendolas, which, uh, which I actually had to look up. Is like, is this an actual thing or is this something that they made up? I wasn't it, sure. It is weird because like there's all this science stuff and then just like made up science in the middle. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wait, what? And I'm like, what does this mean? And <laughs> how does this fit in? And so, like, I guess I was fascinated just because partly it is so boldly whatever it wants to be. And like the fact that there's cherubim and three of the boring principle and this Kai thing, which is kind of like psychic linking, but kind of like deeper than that. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's a weird thing, but it's a sort of weird that I'm like, this is great. No, like, a second Death Star? I'll take it. <laughs> that that sort of thing for me. Like, ooh, more craziness. I you know, So it just, it works for me, but I completely understand that it wouldn't for everyone. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, obviously, I've enjoyed Doctor Who in the height of its weirdness. Yeah. I think because I was expecting something a little bit more grounded that I didn't know what to make of it. And honestly, some of the things, and I still don't really understand how, what she was saying now, in terms of like Christian truth. Yeah. Now, as far as, yeah, it does seem like it did seem a little more timey-wimey, but Christian truth, it does seem to really push this sort of like, we're all interconnected and helping, you know, working, you have to love you. I'd really love, there's a whole theme about loving the unlovable with the principle, which I really yeah. enjoyed. That that was cool. Yeah. And, I, then, and then some of this, like, we're connected in ways that you don't even know and stuff. But some of that pushes into a little past Christianity into a, a sort of mumbo-jumbo area. I think for me, the, the problem is I can understand some of those ideas on a, like, theological level. Like, I think C.S. Lewis has pointed out that in some ways, the mystic isn't wrong in terms of, like, you know, because God is everywhere in everything. Yeah. They just have some of the details messed up. Because this was, in some ways, this sort of felt like the Ingalls' take on 
the space trilogy, like Lewis's kind of, space trilogy, where you take some theological ideas in a sci-fi setting. Yeah. But here, it was hard to distinguish between the weird rules of this fantasy scenario she's setting up and her actual theology can, behind it. I can see that. Yeah. I, it was it was a weird uh, Gregorian knot to untangle, and it is. I won't I won't argue that. So, would you recommend this, Tim? <laughs> I will leave the listener to decide, depending on their converse, our conversation. <laughs> if you like something super out there, I mean, and it was certainly original. I mean, that's I will certainly give it credit for that. For yeah. in our world of like story saturated stuff, where we've heard of a lot of different, it's nothing like anything else. No, no. So I, I would say if you like if you liked um, Wrinkle in Time, I'd give it a try. You might. It's not the same thing, but it, it's perpendicular. It's uh, tangential to it. Is the right way to say it? It's related. Next, it's related somehow. It's related. So. It's sideways to it. <laughs> Again, points for originality yeah. at the very least. All right. So after that was The Emperor's Soul. Yeah. And you were this one too. I did. This was uh, my first Brandon Sanderson. Nice novella here. Yes. And I know you've read a lot of his long books. A lot of his long. I never did anything short by him. So this was interesting. <laughs> I did really enjoy this. This was kind of a novella length. It, we, yeah. We compared it. It, it did remind me a lot of like a Children of the Wells length. It's, yeah. About yeah, that, like 30,000 words or something, um, maybe. 30, and honestly. 40. I couldn't help but think of our long lost Kalia uh, book that uh, is still in progress because this is another story that's about a woman, an expert at something that is toiling over a very specific situation. Basically, it's a, well, you said Natasha read it and. Yeah. And she says basically the entire book's there to explain this magic system. Like, which is, she's not wrong. Is <laughs> if the author had this one magic system idea that he really wanted to get out there, so he wrote a novella about so it. So basically, they make stamps. They can rewrite the history of anything. Basically, like a table, like you can say, oh, wait, it actually was always kept up instead of falling into disuse, and then becomes a nice-looking table. It, it reminded me a lot of alchemy from Full Metal Alchemist mm-hmm. in terms of, like, you get a vague sense of how this works, but not, like, where the actual energy for... So you, you draw the circle on a thing, and it suddenly yeah. it transforms <laughs> into something else by... Magic. It's stuff. just the world. The world works that way. Yeah, but the general idea is that you you got to know something super well to know the history of it, and then you can change small things in its history, like basically rewrite what happened to it. Mm-hmm. So over the course of the book, she like remakes her room, which is like this pit into this like lavish, luxurious room, just by you know like figuring out, <laughs> oh look, there's a leak here, but it could have been over there, and then. They use a, de- a better kind of wood or the whoever carved this decided to add some flourishes. Yeah. So anyway, but I mean, this was a prison cell that she was in. Yeah. And then she transformed it into a like a most luxurious room in the palace. But the main job she's doing is that the emperor of this country is basically comatose. Yeah. He's, he's a vegetable. Vegetable state from an assassin. Um, and she's got she's been charged to rewrite his soul to basically copy it. Based on, she has to do lots of study about the emperor's life, figure out who he was, and then make this soul that will not actually be his soul, but would act just like it. It basically, yeah, it'll, it'll rewrite, it'll stamp on top of him, and so that he's not vegetable anymore. Yeah, and she's basically in a hard place because she was caught stealing something from the palace, and the people who are in charge are, even though they they don't approve of this kind of forging, they need her to do it so they can stay in power. Yeah. And, and so she's up in a, she's got a time limit. She's up again. The time limit works really well for this novella. It really does. Yeah. So I found this really fun 
quick read. It was a really fun quick read. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was it was interesting. There's this neat interesting conversation between her and one of the the people she's working for. One of the only good people. And he was an interesting character. He's an interesting foil. character and interesting discussion been between. He was like, "You're such a good forger. Why not just make this stuff? Why not make your own art?" And she was like, "Well, this is art." Because I'm putting all this work yeah. into it, dang it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, between what's the use of imitation and art and all the mean, you know. So so those things are kind of in the background, sort of adding flavor to. And in, the, in true postmodern style, I feel like he doesn't really necessarily come down on any one thing. But he he poses a lot of interesting questions. And it's I, on her end of things, it's interesting to think about how. She's basically forced in order for because she needs to be able to work with this guy. She's basically forced to be authentic yes. with him, which is interesting because her work involves basically lying about creating falsehoods. And yet she also has to be true to another person. The best lie is one that's mostly true. Yeah. Which, I don't know, again, lots of interesting ideas. Well, lots in there. of little interesting ideas, lots of, you know, questions. My minor complaint was that I kind of wish. Some of those ideas would have been delved into more, but it's not really the place in this book. It's just sort of a thing like, oh, I wish we would have had more. That, and that's more my personal, like, like deal. If you ever read, say, Remnant of Dreams, um, <laughs> sort of thing. So I, I recommend it. it, was, it was yeah, I would recommend take- if you like, if you never read Sanderson or you just like fantasy and you want a quick read, there's no reason not to read it. Yeah. yeah it was a nice, nice introduction to Sanderson for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So finally, this is the first time I miss doing. We we have this tradition of doing a Dickens short story, one of his holiday short stories in December. This was the fourth one. Yeah, this fourth is the one. fourth one, and I miss this one. What was it called? The Battle of Life. Okay, and uh, what was it about? It's a basically about. It's very down to earth, as it is like there's no supernatural elements or ghosts or anything. Um, basically, the sisters engage with this guy, and then she runs off, and then kind of the aftermath, uh, not with him. With someone else. Okay. And the aftermath of that. And then she comes back and all is well. So, you know, because Dickens' a happy ending. First off, I gotta mention, as always, I love Dickens' writing and I love his characters. The best, the takeaway best is um, Snitch and Craggy. Okay. They're the lawyers. It's Snitch and Cra- Craggy Incorporated, or, in, you know, whatever. And they're, and they're, they go together everywhere and they, you know, they finish up. Craggy doesn't talk much with Snitch. Snitchy. It's snitching crags. Snitching crags. Okay. Um, and they're they're fabulous. But there's also Clemency, who's super clumsy. and they're, they're, But anyways, the two and the, the father, who's like, oh, the life's just a joke. There's nothing serious in life. Everything's just a joke. Which I think is just a very interesting thing. That's like a philosophy nowadays. And this is mm, like from... Yeah. Um, but he learns that it's not, because then his daughter runs away and he becomes sorrow, makes him... Oh, find things more meaningful. Interesting. Um, but what I'm also perpetually fascinated with Dickens, besides his characters and his writing and everything like that, is in three sections, I think, like three days, about oh, okay. a year apart from each other. Okay. Mm. Or no, a year and then like a couple more years later. Anyways, but they're all like the same day, but years apart. Okay. Is his ability to write about goodness... Like, these two sisters, like, deeply care for each other. Mm-hmm. And, like, you don't feel... Well, I didn't feel like it was forced or fake, but it's just, like, the ending, you realize that the one sister ran away not because she was trying to hurt anyone, but because she knew that her sister was really in love with her... Oh. With the one that she was going to marry, but uh-huh. she would never said it because they were both super self-sacrificing to each other. Mm-hmm. 
and just to have that illustrated and and talked out and and spread you know not just as a moment but as like an entire drawn out conclusion this sort of like all these people who basically learn to like sacrifice for each other is is a fascinating thing mm-hmm. uh, and Dickens does it really well I think it was much more like last year's book than the oh. two before okay last year we did a cricket on the hearth yeah did this one take place during any holiday it was in the winter at one point and okay I uh, I think they mentioned New Year but I mean not particularly okay no. Yeah, these these holiday Christmas. December, I think, he, I think they it's more by come, theme than yeah, and they might just come out every Christmas. Then. I don't know, but okay. I really enjoyed it. I'm like, I'm like, why have more people not read this? Again, it's, it is more low key. It's not as fantastical as some of his stuff, or as even as overblown as some of his other characters. Okay, but I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, cool. All right, well, those were our book club books. Did we miss anything? Uh, not right now. Awesome. So I hear some alarms going off. Man, that's a lot of alarms. I yeah, it doesn't like almost end of the world sort of sounding. I hope the podcast. Let's get out of here quick. Yeah, here, that's. I, th- I think that's probably a good idea. Um, assuming we survive the end of the world here, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Yes, uh, you can always always visit us at derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com or email us at derailtrains at gmail.com. And we are also on Facebook and Twitter if you care to follow us on either of those things, although we have been very lax in doing anything over there. We are there, and that about is about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim, so what is your soundtrack for today? Okay, for my soundtrack, I uh, you, you know you can go with almost anything for video games for soundtrack because they all get overanalyzed yeah. somewhere on the internet. But as we said before, some stories kind of invite you to overthink it because they overthink things. And one of those series would be Kingdom Hearts. What? Yes. So I've got a song uh, cover from Kingdom Hearts 3. This is a cover of the song Don't Think Twice. Oh, I like it. Which, again, a name that fits with us. Uh, this is a violin cover by Luna Lorraine uh, that has the backing instrumental music is by The Right Step. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I hope you enjoy it. And until uh, next time, we probably need to get out of here. Yes. (laughs) Until next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. Bye-bye.